0: Good morning and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, October the 26th, 2018. I'm your host, Tiffany, and joining me from our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Erica, Doug, and Elliot. Hello.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: Hi. Hi. Okay. So the topic for today's show is supplementation pill poppers. Why are we taking all of these supplements again? So we're going to be talking about supplementation, over-supplementation, supplementation supplementation gone wrong, supplementation success stories, (laughs) and everything in between. So if you have an interesting or not so interesting supplement story, you can call in if you'd like, or by all means, put it in the chat. We'd like to hear your story. So the FDA defines a supplement as any vitamin, enzyme, botanical, amino acid, or mineral that is not intended to cure or prevent a disease, which from my experience, personally, and from everybody I know, that's the main reason to take a supplement. You either want to... Get rid of something you have or get something that you don't have. Yeah. So that's kind of a, I don't it's know. Like maybe why that's are you just. you taking the
2: mother-wise.
0: Yeah, because they taste good. <laughs> they don't. A lot of them are gross. But, um, yeah. So uh, I guess we can start with, I don't know. Where do we want to start?
2: Well. Maybe we could talk about our experiences with supplements. (laughs) Because for me personally, I was always a pretty big supplementer. Um, Ever since I went to uh, holistic nutrition school, it's like I started hearing about supplements and I started like taking them and experimenting with them and stuff. And then that continued for a while. And then I started working in a supplement store. So I was getting all these free samples all the time and stuff. And I was always taking all these supplements. But... The thing was, I was always kind of like, I don't really know if these are doing anything. Mm -hmm. And just recently, like, I would go up and down with my supplementation. Like, I'd start to be like, you know what, I'm taking too many supplements. Like, you know, I don't need to be chucking back 20 pills. And just recently, I was kind of like, you know what, I really, I don't know if anything is actually helping with anything. I don't even know what it is because I'm taking so many. So I was just like, that's it. I'm going to eliminate all my supplements. And then if I start to feel crap about anything in particular, I'll add some back in and like, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, more be kind of intelligent about it and decide um, based on the symptoms what I think I need. And that was like probably three or four months ago and I've noticed nothing, oh. absolutely nothing. So I'm kind of like, okay, I guess I don't really need supplements.
0: So you don't feel worse and you don't feel better? Correct. Yeah. How much money do you think that you spent over the years on supplements? I couldn't even (laughs) guess.
2: I mean, when I was working for the store, I was getting a lot of free samples and Mm -hmm. stuff. And a lot of times, like the salespeople would be wanting you to try their supplements so that that you would then recommend them. Mm -hmm. And so they give you free samples of this or that, and I would get stuff and try it. But I don't know. It's probably a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I spent a pretty penny, like depending on the quality of the supplement and the manufacturer, some of this stuff can cost quite a lot of money, especially if you're taking them over a long period of time. Like some people, like if you have the choice to buy something on certain websites and they said you want like a continuous 30-day supply that'll be automatically shipped to you, mm-hmm. it's like a prescription drug or people treat it like a prescription drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I used to take supplements, not a whole lot. I think one of my main things or maybe the saving grace is that I forget to take stuff (laughs) like after a week or so, or maybe even less than a week or so. And then after a while, I'm just like, "Eh, whatever, I don't notice anything. Anyway, that was a nice little experiment. Let's move on to the next thing. (laughs) But uh, yeah, lately... I haven't been taking anything every once in a while, I'll try something like because I thought that maybe in the past it had an effect, like something like p q q that's supposed to boost mitochondria. like when I took it at first, it gave me like really, really, really bad night sweats. I was like, "Hmm, does that mean something good, or does that mean something bad? So yeah. I took it again, and nothing happened, so uh, I forgot to take it. And that's a story on that, but (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm not one to take a lot of pharmaceutical meds. And I think that people who may have come from a history of taking a lot of medications and for some reason they got healthier and they got off of them, they might still have that same pill for every ill mindset and take supplements as if they're pharmaceutical drugs.
1: Yeah, so but I don't I've really had, care much for him. I've had mixed experience with supplements. Um, uh, similar to what Doug was saying, I've kind of gone through cycles where I would be taking quite a lot of things and then, you know, sort of reduce the amount because I thought I was taking too many. Um, and over the years, I've probably spent a good couple thousand pounds on <laughs> supplements because they can get quite expensive. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And most of the time it would be because I've read about the benefits. Um, I've read about the benefits for whatever reason. Um, And what I've done in the past, and I think many of us are uh, are responsible for for this, is, is that we see that something works in a very specific context for a specific health condition. And then we see that, say, you have a supplement which is shown to boost mitochondrial function or something Mm. in a very you know say for someone with chronic fatigue fatigue syndrome who have established problems with their mitochondria and so they take these nutrients and they boost it and then we try to extrapolate those results and apply them to ourselves Mm -hmm. and most of the time like you both i haven't really noticed any difference and that is with the large majority of supplements that I've taken. Now, that being said, I have had some experience with certain compounds which have had a pronounced effect. But what I can say is the reason behind me implement, in, implementing those into my routine is for very specific reasons based mm-hmm. on my own individual understanding of how things work how my body works, and also based on tests that I've done and measurements that I've done, and so there are certain things which do provide measurable, objective results, mm-hmm. and so I can say that some of them do have a beneficial effect. Could I take? Could I tell you that they would have a beneficial effect for anyone else? Mm-hmm. Um, no, because it's highly individual. Um, And I think that there is a strong tendency for anyone who kind of ventures out of conventional medical thinking toward a more alternative or holistic perspective. It's very easy to be taken aback by a lot of the accounts online and a lot of the articles that you come across Mm -hmm. that this supplement is necessary for you to achieve ultimate health or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to achieve.
2: Yeah. 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 I think that's the, that's the big thing, actually, is that a lot of times, you know, you read, like you were saying, Elliot, you read about, like, you know, people in certain disease states having beneficial results, and even though you're not in that state, it's kind of like you think, well, maybe it'll make me even better, <laughs> you know, even though, like, I'm relatively healthy right now, but I want to be even better. It's like, we all want to be, like, super people, right? So, mm-hmm. these, this supplement is going to, like, you know, boost us to the ultimate health.
0: And the the testimonials and even like the write-up for certain products, they can be so persuasive. Like people come on like, oh, I cured this, I cured that. I have so much energy and I never felt better and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wow, I want to try that. And then it just doesn't work. Like I have the same thing. <laughs> well, vitamin C I'll use as an example. Either the powdered form or the, liposomal form Hmm. i never like even if i felt a cold coming on or like the few times i had the flu took vitamin c i still got the flu i still got a cold and (laughs) there's been other times where i've gotten the flu or a cold and didn't take vitamin c and oh wow i recovered anyway so it's just things like that make me get kind of turned off and I think the main thing that I might use vitamin C for now is to get to bowel intolerance if i mm-hmm. if I have to do something that's what it's good for for me, so that's what I would use it for, but anything else no yeah.
3: well, I never really took supplements um I worked at a health store too, so I was kind of in that industry, and um I was kind of more drawn towards the herbal stuff, you know, taking valerian root if you needed to sleep or um, different herbs but not so much vitamins Mm. and um, having been pregnant and being told to take vitamin supplementation it they just made me sick more than anything. And I just kind of yeah. vomited them up after I <laughs> took them. So it was kind of like, oh, well, I don't really need this. I was more drawn toward like the liquid mineral stuff or uh, when my kids were little, we did the Floridex herbs. So it was like a oh, liquid yeah. um, herbal kind of concoction. Uh, but as far as supplements Uh, Like Tiffany, I can never remember to take them, but I will say that my husband was pretty ill about seven years ago with gastrointestinal reflux disease and possibly needing stomach surgery and all these things. And he went to a naturopath. And I've noticed this when you go to a naturopath is there like-
0: You leave with a handful or
3: bag full of stuff. And so she was very helpful in the sense where she essentially just told him to change his diet, which I think in the end ended up working more than the supplements. But at one point in time for about two years, we were spending $700 a month on supplements mm. and he was convinced it was making him feel better. And, um, but like you all have shared, his diet had totally changed. Mm-hmm. And when we could no longer afford the $700 a month in supplements, he didn't feel worse. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So um, I have well, mixed feelings about it. You know, like I will do the liposomal vitamin C if, you know, twice a year, if I feel like I'm getting an itchy, sore throat and maybe yeah. it's just a placebo and it, I, I don't get sick. But other than that, I tend to just stick to like teas or... So like turmeric is a really good example. For years, we grew turmeric. We would juice it. You could gargle with it. And I had great effects from turmeric. Mm -hmm. Would I ever do the tablets? Nah, not really. It's just... Again, it was not a lot that I noticed. So that's my story.
0: Wasn't that in one of our articles that we read? They were talking about how which is a component of tur- turmeric uh, and all of all the tests and studies that they had on it they've not been able to not- uh, notice any good effect in the subjects unless it's just strictly gi effects yeah, like it's same. so hard to get into the bloodstream like i've had good effect with turmeric but it was for uh, king tut's revenge and it worked really well for that but aside from anything else like if I put it in food or anything, I didn't notice any difference one way or another. But what were you gonna well, say, Elliot?
1: In you see in the research, if you look at the in vitro data for curcumin, which is the um it's one of the components of turmeric and it's the one that they a lot of the researchers are really most interested in because if you study it in vitro, which means outside of the human body in like a petri dish, and you look at the effect that it can have on cancer cells, on autoimmunity, on uh, modulating the immune response. On, I mean, there's so so many areas that curcumin in the lab mm-hmm. has such an amazing effect on. Mm-hmm. But what they're finding it so difficult to do is is actually get it into the human body, because the curcumin is really renowned for its lack of bioavailability which means the body's ability to absorb it and so you can consume it orally um and most of it is inactivated it's not absorbed you need a lot of fat to absorb it but even then there are multiple different holes in it (laughs) there's lots of problems um and it's theorized that some of the beneficial effects may be local so it may happen sort of at the gut epithelial level so right at the surface of the intestines that is where it may be active but ultimately getting it into the body where it's untouched getting it into the cells and then allowing it to actually do stuff is i mean i don't think anyone really knows how to do that and that's Mm. an example of extrapolating in vitro data and applying it to humans because if you look at the market there are thousands of different curcumin supplements or turmeric extract and all of these different things but here we come up across another problem as well um, and this is the, I guess it's a western kind of uh, phenomena whereby we isolate a specific c- component of a plant and we um we try to attribute beneficial effects to that isolated component but we in doing that we neglect that when it is in plant form, when it is in the, the whole food form, there are probably thousands or millions of different synergistic reactions which allow it to work the way that it is proposed to work. Um in, in real life. So, you know, and it's just another problem with the idea of taking a supplement because most supplements are not whole food form and if they Mm. are whole food form they're probably not very good because there's such small amounts of the component that it's not going to have the beneficial effect but at the same time most supplements are just purely isolated compounds and to do anything with that i mean it's it's fairly unnatural for the human body because we never really came into contact with isolated things, you know? Everything's <clears throat> always packaged in, like, it's natural package. so uh, that was just a little addition there.
4: Yeah.
0: That was a good addition.
2: <laughs> I think this kind of gums, comes into the problem <clears throat> of uh, antioxidants. Yeah. I think antioxidants are kind of like they're huge right now. And I think, um, as Elliot was saying with in regards to turmeric and curcumin, I think the problem is that, you know, they have an effect. So basically an antioxidant is if there's any kind of oxidative reaction going on, like uh, free radicals um, like rusting, causing damage. Yeah, like rusting, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, antioxidants actually prevent that from happening. They quench the free radicals. And you know, in a lot of cases, they'll kind of look at the antioxidant potential of different compounds in the lab, and be like, "Oh my God, this is this is crazy! How much uh, oxidation it's preventing?" And they give it a score. I can't remember what the meter is called, but um, the problem is that they're not they're not looking at it in the body. They don't know what that's actually doing and whether or not it's even getting absorbed. And my favorite example of this is uh there was this drink i don't even know if it still exists i think it does uh, it's called does. Palm. Mm-hmm. palm wonderful yeah <laughs> and it's basically this super sugary uh drink juice, but it comes
0: in unquote. a really cute bottle
2: it sure does That's part of and the appeal it's got super antioxidant power but i think there was a study done and they, they figured out that people were absorbing basically 0.2 percent of the <laughs> antioxidants in it so at the end of the day, you're having a Coke, right? With like a little bit of antioxidant power in there. So the idea that it's going to stop oxidation because like sugar, sugar is like so pro-oxidant. It's crazy. <laughs> so basically you're try, you're doing the exact opposite of what mm-hmm. you think that you're doing. And, and that's, I'm... Go ahead. sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, that's not even taking into account whether or not we should be taking antioxidants at all. I mean, who's to say that we don't need some oxidation? I think I remember from reading, or maybe it was when we did the Jack Cruz interview, he was talking about a certain amount of oxidation is necessary on the mitochondrial level in order to actually produce ATP or to produce an energy reaction. So people are just going around slamming all these antioxidants and they could actually be doing themselves a disservice.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the case because, um, I mean, Elliot can maybe go into more detail on this, but um, basically, like, in order for your body's own antioxidant system to be activated, it needs to, you know, detect oxidation. And your body's um, multiple systems of... Uh, Anti- antioxidation are so much more powerful than mm-hmm. anything you could be taking from uh, an external source, and the idea that you could be taking, like you know, something like uh, you know, resveratrol or curcumin or something like that, and killing the oxidation in your body, you're basically like doing a half-assed job of what your body would be a lot better at doing anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, and I know there was a study actually when they were um, checking people who were using antioxidants as recovery from exercise, and they found that they were actually um, interfering with the benefits of exercise by taking these antioxidants. Mm. Like it was basically like, well, you're just uh, undoing all, all what you just did for the exercise. So you just tortured yourself for no good reason. That is so
0: typical of people to think that they're helping so much. Oh, I'm just going to help my body do this like you know better than your body. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Just get out of the way and let your body do its work.
1: Yeah. So just to touch on what Doug was speaking about just then. Um, In the past sort of couple of decades, um, there was this whole idea that oxidative stress um, so oxidation in the body is linked with health, problematic health conditions um, and that it is automatically bad because of that and therefore the way to remedy that is to um, provide extra antioxidants which can reduce the oxidative stress And theoretically, what they thought was that by providing the body with more antioxidants in the form of supplements or whatever, um, that this would counteract the damage and therefore it would lead to amazing health effects. What they found was really quite disappointing was that (laughs) antioxidant supplementation really did not provide much benefit. And in fact, in many cases, it was detrimental. Um, And so this is sort of led to a shift in the way that we understand things or the way that scientists see things now. And it turns out that when you look at antioxidants um, and you look at what foods contain antioxidants, you look at fruits, you look at vegetables, these kinds of things. And this is one of the reasons why we have been led to think that fruits and vegetables and herbs and spices and all of these weird and wonderful things are beneficial for health but and in fact this is what i was taught when i studied nutrition yeah, me too. was that you should increase your intake of the foods which have highest antioxidant potential mm-hmm. but when you look at what actually happens in the human body the antioxidant potential is really quite rapidly destroyed Because an antioxidant is very uh, susceptible to external conditions, such as heat and acid and temperature changes and uh, moisture. So you think when it goes into the human body, it's extremely moist. It hits the stomach acid, which has such a low pH that it can kill practically anything. And uh, aside from that, your body temperature is really quite warm (laughs) and so the antioxidants are fairly quickly neutralized when they enter the body however um what they do know is that consuming certain things does definitely upregulate the body's response to detoxify things and upregulate the body's natural antioxidant systems Mm -hmm. and so how does this work because it's not the antioxidants and so what they found out was, in fact, it is the toxicity of various plank, compo- uh, plank components which actually exerts a mildly beneficial effect. So this is referred to as hormesis. And what this means is that when you introduce a very low dose toxin, what it does, the body picks it up and it says, holy cow, there's a, toxin and so we need to get rid of this this is a stressor but it's not enough of a stressor to put the body under significant amounts of stress it's not enough of a stressor to cause any significant harm but it is enough of a stressor to be able to upregulate the body's own defense systems and the technical details for anyone who wants to know about this system is referred to as nrf2 Okay, this is like a toxicity switch. And when the body picks up a low dose toxin, it activates this switch called NRF2. And this basically goes over to the nucleus of the cell and starts transcribing genes, which are coding for proteins, which then go on to upregulate all of the other defense systems. And this is actually how plants can be beneficial in certain contexts. This is how. Poisons can be beneficial in certain contexts. Now, that's not to say that these things in very high doses are good, because it doesn't seem that that is the case. Uh, I'll give you one example. When I was doing a lot of research into the effects of tobacco, um, this is one of the mechanisms which is proposed to be some of the beneficial effects of smoking tobacco is actually uh, low-dose carbon monoxide upregulates antioxidant defenses, whereas high-dose carbon monoxide will leave you dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a very tight balance between these things, and simply providing the body with a bunch of antioxidants does not activate that system, and in fact can suppress that system it can suppress the body's ability to respond to stressors because mild stressors are healthy. Whereas when you suppress that system, you're potentially uh, evoking a situation where the body can no longer detect when something is wrong because it's being um, suppressed. And like Doug was saying, when you exercise, you want oxidation and you want a certain degree of inflammation because if you're looking to build muscle mass, then infl- the, the immune response is what comes away and clears away um, dead strands of muscle and is what is involved in building new muscle tissue. And so if you take an anti-inflammatory, or you know, high-dose antioxidant, you are potentially um, suppressing or inhibiting the body's ability to rebuild that muscle. And so you can prolong recovery. So for athletes and things, this is why they do not advise for this stuff. Anyone who knows what they're talking about will not advise this.
0: So that hormetic response, could that also be an explanation for why people first start taking a supplement? They might notice a benefit and then after a while just nothing happens or they feel a little bit worse.
1: I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I can't. I guess it would depend on the kind of supplement because Mm -hmm. I think certain herbs, um, this is one of the effects that they do certainly have. Um, To think, I mean, one of the examples of this is actually curcumin. So I don't know if it has the effects in the body, but this is one of the effects that it has on cells as well. Is that it is, or green tea, for instance, there are Mm -hmm. components of green tea which activate um, this sort of um stress response system cellular stress response system Um, and this is how they're proposed to work but the question is is whether the so-called healthy components of the green tea are the ones that are actually exerting the beneficial effects Mm. like it's not the antioxidant potential of the green tea it's the fact that it's bloody toxic
2: yeah (laughs) yeah it's, and it's funny because, you know, it, it's taking people a long time to actually make this shift and to kind of realize this. And I think that's partially or maybe even entirely due to marketing because the whole antioxidant thing is so easy to market, right? You put the, the number of the antioxidant potential and people don't realize that it's not getting absorbed and it's probably not the, the, the thing that's actually having the beneficial effect anyway. So, you know, the, but, but it's marketed, you know, like the, the entire whole superfoods thing all comes from this antioxidant BS. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, goji berries or, <laughs> I don't know, mangosteen and all these like exotic things that people think that they need to be taking
4: mm-hmm. because of
2: their really high antioxidant value. When realistically, any of these things, if they're having an effect at all, it's because it's poisoning you a little bit.
3: Well, and it's kind of back to that whole idea of the palm juice, you know, that you would take it for the antioxidant, but you're getting overloaded with sugar.
0: That's my story with goji berries. I thought I was doing mm. such a great job giving myself all these antioxidants. Turned out that secretly I just liked them because they were sweet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> or not so secretly.
3: Well, and another really popular one is acai, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A-C-A-I berry. And, uh, you know, they'll, they make it like a frozen kind of ice cream now, so everyone thinks that it's a great alternative to ice cream. Mm-hmm. But they add guarana root into it, so you get, it's like intense caffeine high too. And I... <laughs> I made the mistake one time of eating an acai bowl and I was up all night long after I ate it and it gave me the worst stomach ache and I had the worst hangover the next morning and it was just like, okay, I won't be doing that again. But if you were to actually eat a handful of just the berries, you're going to, you know, it may, like Elliot was saying, have an effect. Mm -hmm. But as far as eating heavily processed foods that have it to kind of combat that sugar, I think it's a losing battle.
1: And here's the question as well, is that if, like, we look at our world today, we see how toxic it is, and the the question is, do you want to be adding in more toxicity Mm. on a daily basis? Like, you know, something like goji berries, how often would someone seriously consume those? You know, I mean, they they're tasty, yeah, but how would you ever be in a situation? I mean, in the nor- Northern Hemisphere, living in the UK, I can speak for myself. I mean, a hundred years ago or so, we wouldn't even know what goji berry is. You know? So, <laughs> ten years like, ago, <laughs> you probably <wouldn't> yeah. <laughs> so, I question if we're coming into contact with all of these environmental toxins do we really want to be adding fuel to the fire? You know, mm-hmm. if, if, our, if, our, if our ability to adapt on a cellular level is already compromised, then is adding these minor stressors, but you think if you're one of these kinds of people who takes all of these different supplements with the superfoods and stuff, is that really going to be beneficial? You know this is something that I think about a lot and I question whether it is I don't think it should make up a significant portion of the diet Mm -hmm. and I don't discount that in maybe occasionally it may have some beneficial effects for some people Um, is it something that we should all be taking because if you read some of these articles Um, or even some of the books, like the well-known naturopaths and nutritional therapists. I mean, seriously, some of the people who I trained with and I was lectured by, they would have you believe that you should be having this as much as possible, all day, Mm -hmm. every day. And I don't agree with that.
2: It's interesting because I was reading this article by uh, Dr. Todd Becker. And he had this, has this article called the, the Case Against Antioxidants. And I'll post it in the chat actually. But um, he goes through the whole thing and he's going through like some, uh, some studies and stuff and finding all these studies that are finding zero benefit or actually in some cases detriment from taking antioxidants. And this isn't even exotic ones. This can be like vitamin C, vitamin E, beta carotene. Um, and he goes through the entire thing. Um, and he has kind of like a paleo perspective on things but he gets to the end and it's kind of like, I'm thinking, okay, so like, he's even saying that like, you know, vegetables, this is what is beneficial about them. You know, it's not the antioxidant effect is this hormetic effect that you're kind of taking in these things that have a minor kind of toxic effect and that mobilizes the body's um, resources to, to have a beneficial effect. And, you know, my perspective reaching the end of the article was kind of like, why am I eating vegetables? <laughs> and his perspective was like the exact opposite. He's like, "See, that's why we should eat vegetables because it, it has this effect. Like it's this minor toxic thing that uh, that that mobilizes all our 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 resources and you know helps us to uh, to heal." But I was kind of it was just funny because it was kind of like he was almost looking for a reason to justify vegetable eating. <laughs> and I got to the end of it and I was kind of like, "Well, vegetables seem pretty useless to me." Okay. <laughs>
3: Well and it used to be that people would eat vegetables to get things like magnesium or nutrients in the vegetable, right? But th- that they would pick up from the soil, but the soil is so depleted now mm-hmm. that you're not you would have to eat like loads of Swiss chard <laughs> to even get a little bit of it. So it it just seems like kind of the theme of our show mm-hmm. for years now has been you just can't outdo the bad yeah. by yeah. purchasing all these things that are questionable. And you know, magnesium deficiency is a really big issue. So yeah. it's hard. It's hard to navigate. Well, that brings up another point
0: with supplements. I know it seems like we're just pooing all over supplements <laughs> for this whole show, but we no, do want to make good. it clear that in certain conditions and certain for certain people that supplementation can be a good thing. For sure. But another thing to take into account is the mode of delivery. So when you mentioned magnesium, like switching from uh, being a carbivore to eating a keto diet, like some people would get like muscle cramps or something like that. And so I got them too. And I would try and take like uh, magnesium. Don't take magnesium. What is that? Magnesium oxalate was just basically sidewalk chalk, but there's better forms of magnesium allegedly like uh, Uh, orotate, and malate, and citrate, but I never noticed any relief from any kind of stiff muscles or cramps by taking oral magnesium. However, taking magnesium chloride flakes in a bath, Mm -hmm. that was good. So I guess it all depends on delivery, like there's magnesium oils. So some things might be better absorbed through the skin but if you swallow them, it's not going to do what you want it to do.
2: Well, also, Tiff, the, the, as we were talking about on last week's show about salt, or wait, mm-hmm. was that last week? Maybe it was two weeks yeah. ago. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it turns out that in a lot of cases when people are going through their transition to ketosis, it's, they're actually low in salt.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: that would solve the cramp, the cramp issue. Just chug some salt.
0: And also just not need eating a bunch of carbs and sugar that solves a whole heck of a lot of problems that people think that they need to try and supplement away
1: yeah um, on the on the topic of of supplementation being beneficial uh, from all that I've read and seen um, and experienced it definitely does have a place in you know in a specific context i think um the the problem is someone doing a little bit of individual research and then thinking that they know what's wrong with them Mm -hmm. and then getting a laundry list of supplements and trying them um and some of them have some questionable fillers and things which can cause problems. Yeah, we should get into that later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure we will. Um, But also, judging their individual symptoms and coming to a conclusion that they are deficient in something. So, for instance, if someone walked into my office and said, okay, I've got all the signs of zinc deficiency, what kind of zinc should I supplement? I would say, okay. um, So, you're willing to probably spend maybe twenty five dollars or twenty pounds in UK on um, on a good quality zinc supplement, and the chances are, if you are deficient, uh, you may need two to three months to see any major resolve resolvement of symptoms. Okay, so that's potentially seventy pounds worth that you're going to spend. um, to see a benefit. Whereas. W- what I would recommend is. Go and get a plasma zinc. <laughs> get a plasma yeah. minerals. Test your minerals. Test plasma zinc. Because that's the best measure for zinc. And let's see if you're deficient. That costs about £50. Pound. <laughs> and if you're not deficient. Then. I'm not going to recommend that you take a z- zinc supplement. <laughs> and if you are deficient. Then let's try you on a zinc supplement, a good quality zinc supplement, if if it's necessary, but also at the same time, what is driving that zinc deficiency? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there's no good taking a zinc supplement for two years just to maintain normal zinc levels because there is something causing your zinc deficiency. Is it pyroluria, a condition where your body gets rid of X ex- or basically depletes itself of zinc and b6 is it that you have really low stomach acid and your body can't cleave zinc from food and therefore you can't absorb it do you have such bad dysbiosis and gut function that you're not really absorbing many minerals and vitamins or is it that there is something in your diet that is either you know do you have excess phytate in your diet you're consuming loads of grains so these are binding up the zinc Or do you just not eat enough red meat? You know, these are all potential causes for someone who is zinc deficient. And so I think as a temporary band-aid, you could do a zinc supplement. But really, what you want to do is look for the root cause um, and not maintain these supplements all of the time. And really kind of work with someone who knows what to look for. And ideally, I mean... I'm biased towards testing. It doesn't provide all the answers, but it provides some answers. And if the testing shows up that you're deficient, then a temporary um, addition of that will probably be very beneficial. However, if you're in the first camp where you're just one of these people who thinks that you're suffering from some condition and therefore you're going to take a supplement to try it, it's probably going to be a waste of money. I'll be honest. Mm. And... I'll give you an example, for instance, myself, if I consume a very sugary or high refined starch meal, um, I'm the type of person, for whatever reason, I'm not quite sure yet, but my blood glucose will skyrocket, I think it will happen to most people, but yeah, my, my blood glucose will go very high, and I ordinarily don't want that, and so... Because of my measurements of my blood glucose, I have objective data to see, okay, this is potentially a problem. And to mitigate that, I might take something like berberine. And I have individually experimented that when I take berberine before a meal or after a meal that contains lots of starchy carbohydrates or sugar, that it will help to maintain a, a, a lower levels of lower level of blood glucose, which is generally... Um, conducive with better health okay and that is measurable that is 100% taking berberine for me it may not apply to other people but for myself this is a good way to mitigate certain things now i do that based on my knowledge and my experimentation and my measurement but these are all things which most people discard out of the window and don't see as as important and they will develop uh, an increasing level or increasing number of supplements which they have absolutely no idea as to the effect of what it's doing to their body mm-hmm. and i think that that's a problem yeah you i know? think a lot
0: of this supplementation that people are doing is just absolute guesswork yeah they don't test they don't do labs and they're just taking things just to see i mean that can be fine not to discount like personal experiment and or experience, and if you actually notice a difference and feel better, yeah. or if you don't. But in order to get even more practical and useful data, I think if you're going to go through the trouble of spending all the money on supplements, at least spend a little bit more and get some labs done
1: yeah.
2: and see if it's but really working. Most of the time, people don't. Yeah. They don't want to do that, right? Because everybody is still very much in kind of the pharmaceutical-type mindset. Right. It's like when I was working in the health food store, the vast, vast majority of people coming in there <clears throat> had some something wrong. And they were like, what helps with this? And mm-hmm. basically they want the pill that's going to solve their problem. Right. They're like, yeah. give me give me the pill that's going to solve my problem. But they've you know, got in their head and probably rightly so that they don't want to go the pharmaceutical route. Right. They want to go the natural route. But the thing is, they're still in the same mindset. So they, they still mm-hmm. think that each of these pills will treat a different thing and it's going to cure it, which is not the case. Most of the time, you know, supplements are more for, um, what's the word? I guess like they, they, they're more like if you're using supplements correctly, you're using them to get to some kind of imbalance in the body, trying mm-hmm. to address an issue that's deeper down than just a surface level right? You can't be just like, I've got a rash, therefore I'm going to use this and it's going to get rid of my rash. You need to look at what's going on in the body. What is actually, I mean, it's like Elliot was saying, like it's, it's where, where is the imbalance, right? So it's like a lot of the times skin issues have to do with the liver, like the Mm -hmm. liver not processing things properly. So maybe that's where the issue is. Maybe it's an allergic reaction and no supplement's going to help anything, anything unless it's like suppressing your immune reaction, which is probably not a good thing. So I guess this is just reiterating what Elliot was saying, but I, I completely agree.
0: And then to add on to that, people are taking like a handful of supplements all at once. You don't know how these supplements interact Combine, with each other. Yeah. Same as when you take a handful of pharmaceutical drugs all at once. There's never been any studies on how these drugs interact, especially if you're taking them month after month, year after year. So you never know. And then I guess this is could be a good time for us to talk about some of the crap that's been found in <laughs> supplements. Yeah um it's some not good stuff uh there's been a couple articles that came out recently on SOT about how libido supplements or weight loss supplements have been spiked and i guess it's on purpose because they're uh if you're selling a libido supplement as a supplement manufacturer sometimes they found uh uh, viagra or cialis in the product (laughs) So apparently these people, the manufacturers, had such little faith that their product would work, they decided to spike it with some real drugs and get the effect that they wanted to get. Just eat some oysters.
1: <laughs> I mean, you definitely get the effect there. But, um... Yeah.
0: Um, there's this been the- uh, steroids found in you know, um, bodybuilding supplements. And mm. that's the whole reason why some people take the supplements because they don't want to do steroids because they're dangerous and they're found in their so-called natural supplements. Yeah.
1: There's there's also other fillers such as yeah. um, magnesium serrate and that's one that quite a bit of <gasps> attention recently Yeah. the last mm. couple of years. But this is known to... This can really cause gut issues in a lot of people. It can prevent the absorption of the nutrient yeah you're taking a nutrient it could prevent it i can't remember the percentage but but quite a lot Mm -hmm. um and it can cause underlying issues in a lot of people and they wouldn't necessarily um correlate it with the supplement they're taking yeah there's this idea that anything that's natural is Mm -hmm. safe um, and really, it's it's not the case. And especially when they're using suboptimal ingredients. And there are some uh, brands, professional brands, that are probably available to the public as well that kind of explicitly state that they're not going to use these things. Yeah. Um, but the majority of supplements, if you're going to get one that costs, that is relatively cheap, or that is in, even is within what you would call a budget... Um, it is probably going to have this in. And for some people, they might be able to tolerate that, but other people, uh, it can cause a lot of issues.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Magnesium stearate is actually a thing that they mix in with the compounds to allow it to flow through the machines better, to make it actually, mm-hmm. you know, so that they can measure how much, like what the quantity is that's going into each of the capsules. or the, yeah, the it's the
0: in so many
2: supplements. It's, it's hard in to find tons, something that doesn't for have it. it. But I was um, one time uh, with uh, I ha- I was with a um, what's it called a supplement rep, and she did this little they thing where those? she took oh yeah like oh, drug reps oh yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely do they, they bring do. free they're lunch to the store sorry
0: do they bring free lunch like the pharmaceutical people no just well, samples
2: yeah. they do lunch <laughs> trainings yeah and samples <laughs> and all that kind of stuff yeah I would say are they they're not really good looking too yes. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, oh. she, took, she took one, um, a capsule that had magnesium stearate in it and kind of emptied it out into some water. And then she took one of hers because she was representing a company that didn't use them. And she put that one out into water. <clears> and the one with the magnesium stearate like clumped up and like did not mix with the water at all. Even though I don't remember what the supplement was, but it was something that should have mixed in with the water. And the one that didn't have the magnesium stearate did it, like kind of dissolved and and worked. And it's kind of like, well, you know, that's what it's doing in your stomach. So, how how good is it if it's got this magnesium stearate all over it?
3: Mm. Another one is vitamin C, uh, the asorbic acid. Uh, at least in the United States, most of it comes from GMO corn, and I don't know if a lot yeah. of people know that, mm-hmm. but. Um, Basically, anything that you buy at Walgreens or CVS or Costco, is, it's all uh, GMO sourced. And so, um, I was reading through an article that was posted a, a while back, uh, early 2010, and they were saying that you can't even really get non-GMO vitamin C in the United States. You have to you go can. outside. You can. You can. Yeah, now, I've got it. Yeah.
2: Now, now brand, actually. Now, there's another one, natural factors. Natural factors actually tests all their stuff to make sure it's not GMO.
3: So that's kind of disconcerting, especially when the, you consider you're supposed to be giving these ki- things to kids for mm-hmm. health and wellness and
2: Yeah. And just the, as another uh,
0: warning, we hope that nobody's getting their vitamins from places like Walmart or Walgreens or Target or other stores like that, if you live in the U.S., because they did a test on these uh, herbal supplements bought in those stores. And Walgreens came out the worst. Like they did DNA tests just to test, like, does this supplement contain the herb that it says it actually contains? Walmart had like a 4% compliance rating. And the other stores weren't that better, that much better.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think the GMO issue is, is huge in supplements. Mm-hmm. And if it's not labeled as not being GMO, you know, I mean, some, some supplements it doesn't apply to, but uh, it definitely is an issue.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And the thing about the pharmaceutical, well, sorry, the uh, supplement reps, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, like, you know, a lot of people have this idea in their head that you know there's a, it's like the very black and white thinking it's like I don't want to support pharmaceutical companies so I'm gonna go the natural route and I'm gonna take these supplements instead and they've got this vision of them having like a farm where they're <laughs> harvesting all these natural things and they're making their supplements in a natural way like grandma's stirring a big pot and that's going <laughs> into the capsules but maybe they don't picture that but nonetheless the vast majority of supplement companies out there are owned by pharmaceutical companies so It really isn't like, you know, and I always kind of think twice when somebody starts talking about how the pharmaceutical companies are, um, you know, trying to shut down um, supplements. I mean, there might be some of that going on, because obviously the supplements aren't making the kind of money that the pharmaceuticals are. But I still think it's like at the end of the day, you're paying the same person. Mm -hmm. So I don't know.
0: You know, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies own the supplement companies. Or yeah. did you say that already?
2: I said that, but that's okay. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> it was important.
0: But... Yeah. Do you want to talk about probiotics? Because I thought that was just fascinating.
2: Yeah, me too. Because yeah.
0: everybody is just all over probiotics these days and how they're so great for your gut and you want to recolonize all of your gut. Good bacteria and it'll help you lose weight and it'll improve your mood and all this stuff but actually taking probiotics has n- not been such a great thing
1: in so, some cases at least
0: yeah in some cases um so there's studies done most of the studies on probiotics i guess there's a difference like if you check somebody's stool you'll get a different different data set than if you like did an endoscopy where you go down their throat into their small intestine or a colonoscopy where you go up their rectum into the colon. So you'll get different data sets from that. So um, they did this test where they wanted to, what was it? They wanted to see uh, the effect of probiotics. So they got a group of people together and they took a sample of their poop and saved it for later. And I think they gave them antibiotic and they went back and tested them after that. And they found that the antibiotic actually delayed the return of normal
4: for their gut bacteria. Yeah, Yeah, the probiotic. probiotic.
0: The probiotic delayed how long it took for their gut bacteria to return back to normal. But if they got their own poop sample instead of the probiotic, afterwards their uh, gut bacteria was back to normal within a few days.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the idea that I mean the, to be fair this study was using some, you know, generic off the shelf probiotic. And Well, that's what mostly what saying, people use. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's uh it, I I think it's it, it, that might be part of the reason that you're you're seeing that result. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, this generic probiotic, like it's not a one size fits all thing, obviously. Everybody has a very unique, um, ecology of bacteria in the, in their digestive tract. So I think that, you know, by taking this generic off the shelf one, um, those strains aren't personalized in any way. Um, and you know, there's like, what, like billions of different strains, Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. millions but nonetheless there's like there's lots. So if you're just taking this generic thing, I'm not actually surprised that it would delay your normal bacteria coming in because you're basically colonizing with a foreign bacteria that you know mm-hmm. you might have had some of that there before, but uh, it probably wasn't the entire digestive tract. So
1: yeah, and with probiotics there's specific strains which have been sort of favored in the research, so Bifidobacteria is one of them. Lactobacillus, Acidophilus, Mm -hmm. a couple others. And so most of the probiotics that you find will contain high levels of these. And they're usually only a couple of strains, high doses of these strains. And again, it's taking this kind of one-size-fits-all approach is that assuming that because certain research has demonstrated that maybe some people lack certain bacteria, all that other strains have been beneficial in certain circumstances, mm-hmm. that therefore everyone needs to have these. And to say that, okay, so you have around a round of probiotics. It, the, sorry, antibiotics. the, the from, from what I'm uh, aware of, the, this antibiotic thing is kind of interesting because just an acute dose of antibiotics doesn't... F- now, I could be wrong about this, but I'm sure I've come across some fairly recent data which spoke about how um, an acute set of antibiotics doesn't necessarily detriment or cause any long-term issues with the microbiome. So, mm-hmm. like, just one set or, say, the occasional set of antibiotics, because the the microbiome kind of springs back fairly rapidly, like within a couple of weeks or a couple of days. Um, And I think that that's kind of the context that we're talking about with this study. So taking these probiotics delayed that ordinary rebound, and that's not necessarily something that you'd want to do. Now, in terms of chronic antibiotic use, specifically for children when they are really developing their immune systems when they're developing their microbiome is sort of in flux at that point and from what i'm aware um long-term and chronic use of antibiotics can have long-term effects and that is a situation where probiotics may be needed Or for certain functional disorders like Crohn's disease, there's been good research for probiotic use in Crohn's disease. Or traveler's diarrhea, there's certain strains which have been shown to be really helpful for that. But again, to paint the same, paint everyone with the same brush, as we kind of keep coming back to, is is just... Doesn't seem to be a good way to go about things. (laughs) It's like the pharmaceutical industry and and sort of conventional medicine is that if you fit into this box, then we give everyone the same protocol. Like everyone who has these symptoms takes this drug (laughs) Mm. and it's kind of the same. Everyone who has a round of antibiotics must have this specific strain of probiotics but everyone is highly individual. And so someone may not be lacking lactobacillus. They may have so much lactobacillus, but they may not have enough of a, uh, another strain, you know? <laughs> and to give them loads of this probiotic may actually be problematic, as as that paper kind of suggests. Um, but another thing that I'd like to touch on briefly is that I'm not sure whether this finding... Um, supports the use of things like prebiotics or maybe other strains of probiotics because there's certain um, specific formulations of different types of probiotics which have a little bit of a different mechanism to the ordinary strains. So when you take an ordinary probiotic, probiotic, you're taking live organisms And whether they can even survive the stomach acid is debatable. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, whether they can colonize the digestive tract is also debatable. And there are other kinds of probiotics. There's a kind called spore-based. And so these are supposed to work on a different mechanism whereby the things that you're taking are not necessarily live they're, it's before they become live, so they're in a dormant state, like a spore-based state, and when you take these, these are said to modulate the gut bacteria in different ways, so rather than just like inoculating yourself with this specific species, these spore-based ones are actually said to kind of come in and decide what you need, and then help the things that you need colonize. Now, again, I don't know if this is going to be beneficial in everyone. I can imagine it's probably not. However, again, like with other supplements, in certain contexts like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or some other kind of gut infection, it does seem to be very beneficial. At the same time, I don't think it's something that everyone should be taking. You know, but well, know. that's
0: why it's important to get tested once again, like before and after. Because if you take, uh, you don't know which strains you're lacking. You don't know which ones you have enough yeah. of. And if you get tested afterwards, and all of your probiotics that you think are doing you so much good are all in your poo and not in your gut where they're supposed to be, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not a good poo, thing. No? <laughs> yeah. I spent over a one hundred bucks on some probiotics before this. That was one thing they found in that yeah. study,
2: actually, was that certain people they called uh, what was the word for it? Um, resistors. Reject resistors. Rege- resistors. resistors. Yeah, resistors and acceptors. And the resistors were people who would take a probiotic, and all of it just got ejected. None of it was uh, was actually colonizing the digestive tract at all.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: yeah expensive poo indeed
3: well what about foods like fermented foods Mm -hmm. so you know things like sauerkraut or kimchi or even kefir which has become very popular do you think because it's a food-based
0: i think maybe it just depends on your tolerances Mm -hmm. like i know somebody who has projectile vomiting (laughs) (laughs) When... when she takes a fermented drink and other people (laughs) they like uh sauerkraut i mean i like sauerkraut just because it tastes good but not necessarily because i'm trying to fix my gut or
2: anything but some people do find it very helpful
4: Mm -hmm. so i think it's another
2: one of those individual and i have a tendency to think that because it's food-based maybe it's um maybe it's better well yeah maybe 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 yeah, I mean, I, I do think that ideally people should be getting everything they need from food. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously there are specific disease conditions where supplementation is necessary, intelligent supplementation. Um, but I think for the average person who's just trying to maintain health, uh, that getting everything you need from food is the ideal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, And you, you can't to... out-supplement a bad diet.
1: No. So
0: don't even waste your money on supplements. At least well, until you clean up your diet.
1: <laughs> that's in the name though, isn't it? It's supplement. So what's mm-hmm. it designed to supplement? It's designed to supplement your diet, if needs be. Ideally it shouldn't have to. Now there's again, there's lots of nuance. schools of thoughts. Yeah, there's 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 nuance here because someone could um <laughs> could come up with the argument that okay we've depleted the soils and we're coming into contact with so many sort of agents which deplete our bodies of these things. So is it not necessary to replete them by supplementation? And to me, that's a logical argument, but whether that has any real life value, I, it's hard to say.
2: <laughs> well, again, it kind of comes down to the whole you know, are you are you just doing it because you've heard that the soil is depleted, so you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> take a multivitamin because um, just in case, you know? Or are you actually intelligently addressing something? Are you showing <laughs> symptoms of deficiency? Yeah. Well, then then maybe you can try supplementing or get some testing done. Even better. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you're just kind of like I'm taking a multivitamin just in case, which most people who are taking a multivitamin that's why they're not trying to address a specific symptom. They're just like. Well, you never know. It doesn't hurt. (laughs) And the thing is, it might hurt.
1: Yeah, so some of the vitamin supplements, like the prenatal vitamins and things, or the multivitamins, they contain certain kinds of vitamins and minerals which are actually synthetic. So to give you a couple of examples, um, folic acid. So folic acid is a synthetic form of vitamin B9, which is otherwise known as folate and uh, it does exist in nature so for some people folic acid is actually blocking the use of folate it actually has a detrimental effect so people think that taking a multivitamin is not going to cause any harm but in some people it is actually potentially causing significant harm yeah so there's always risks um and someone said in the chat they asked about um, the ongoing supplementation of iodine. Now, I'm not sure what you guys think about this. Um, I think that iodine is a funny one um, because there is reason to believe that lots of people are very low in it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, as you know, I'm quite biased towards testing. So if I was going to put someone on iodine, I would probably want to test their urine because you can do it. And if someone had been taking iodine for a long period of time, you can also do something called an iodine loading test. Like if you're the kind of person who thought you were iodine deficient for whatever reason, started taking iodine and have been taking it for maybe like two years... Then I would really say, yeah, so so you've been taking it for two years and you're wondering, is this benefiting me now? Say you saw some benefits at the start and then you're kind of thinking, right, so I've been taking this for two years. I saw some initial benefits, but I don't necessarily know if it's doing anything anymore. Um, Do I even need it? Then I would really get in contact with someone who can order you an iodine loading test. Again, it's very cheap like $90 or something. And that can give you a pretty good indication as to whether you're retaining the iodine. And for something like iodine, if you are retaining it, if you take a certain dose, you're retaining it, then the chances are you need it. Whereas Mm. if you're not retaining any of it and you're getting rid of loads of it, then there's a pretty good chance that you don't need to supplement it anymore. Mm. Yeah, so I don't know what, what your guys thoughts on the iodine thing
0: well iodine was probably one of my worst supplement experimental uh, experiences it made me feel awful bloated water retention and i just wanted to fight everybody in sight so i stopped
4: taking
2: it yeah i had kind of mixed results with it i um I did it for a while but i started getting kind of weird symptoms mm-hmm. like some headaches that wasn't so weird i guess but um i started getting a, a metallic taste in my mouth yeah that like wouldn't go away and that yeah and i think i just kind of got sick of that and stopped doing the iodine
0: yeah So yeah that's another good reason to test mm. Sure. And not just but take totally- things just because somebody says that this is a yeah. good thing to take. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And it can be quite convincing sometimes when you read these books. When you've read a number of books on mm-hmm. nutrition, specifically, yeah, it just makes like... you want to
0: try everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you read the testimonials and you read sort of books on this. You know, specialists in the field who have got very good results, seemingly and. They kind of sometimes portray this idea that everyone needs this Mm -hmm. and in their experience maybe it's the case but i don't think that all of them can be correct in that everyone needs it or that most people need it because some people don't seem to need it uh so i guess it's just highly individualized but sorry go ahead
0: well there's lots of people who write these health books or proponents of certain things, or they make it seem like this one thing that you take will be the answer to all of your problems, and you'll just feel like Superman or Superwoman if you just take this one thing. And I mean, thinking about it logically, of course, that is just not possible. That one thing is the source of all your problems.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: But some people, again, some people (laughs) will benefit from it.
1: Mm -hmm. there are problems with applying these things to the larger population um and one of the things which even in conventional medicine seems to be like in fashion at the moment is vitamin d Mm -hmm. so there's this idea that everyone is deficient in vitamin d Mm -hmm. (laughs) and even like conventional medical doctors who I mean with all due respect like I like what they do but they don't really have much training in nutrition and they don't seem to have much understanding of the way that vitamins work Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if anyone really does (laughs) even if they do have training PhD scientists in nutrition I think there's still so much that we don't really understand and no one really knows and the idea that you run a simple blood test especially for vitamin D because there's quite a lot of problems with the various Mm -hmm. blood tests that they do and the fact that vitamin D also is not just a vitamin and it's debatable whether it is a vitamin and more like a steroid hormone because it Mm -hmm. has hormonal like properties like the other fat soluble vitamins do so it's been classified as vit- vitamin in a conventional medical doctor because it's in fashion, because there's the vitamin D council, and there's all of these different sort of recommendations. They'll test vitamin D, they'll test one marker of vitamin D, which is an inactive form of vitamin D. And if you fall below a certain level, um, then they will recommend um, that you supplement it. And I'll tell you what, in my experience, it's even worse in the nutrition like field in the alternative health field in naturopathic um, medicine and in nutritional therapy the applied nutritional therapies because the reference ranges for for the way that i was trained anyway is that we should be prescribing way more than a conventional doctor may prescribe so a conventional doctor may seem that you have quite quite low levels and so they'll recommend quite a low dose at maybe 400 iu or 800 IU or something like that whereas a nutritional therapist or a naturopathic mm-hmm. doctor might recommend 5,000 IU mm-hmm. like per day and just to give context, that's that's a high dose Yeah, and that's not even a really high dose because there's some doctors who recommend like 30,000 IU I had a hundred thousand mm-hmm. prescribed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that's like once monthly and all it what it seems to be is that we are treating a, a lab test so yeah. you fall without you fall within a specific range and people want to get your numbers up to a certain level but this is not a topic which is accepted among all different professionals in the field and one of the places that i first came across uh, a sort of counter view of vitamin d in the way that we see it Is by a Dr. Chris Masterjohn. So he does a lot of work on nutrition. And he was talking about how the idea that everyone has to have, has to fall within a specific range is kind of absurd. Because Mm -hmm. if you look among all different kinds of ethnicities and different populations, there is very high variability between different ethnicities. And there's this idea that, okay, people with dark skin need to need to supplement more vitamin D or they need to get more sunlight because they don't produce as much. Whereas in actuality, if you look at the health health statistics, I I don't have them at hand. But Dr. Chris Masterjohn does a really good job at basically like laying out a lot of the statistics and makes a very good argument that, in fact, the optimal levels are highly variable and Mm -hmm. that you cannot generalize certain values among all different populations. And while what may be healthy for white Caucasians may actually be too high for someone of African descent. And likewise, it differs between Asia and all around the world. And that, Mm -hmm. again, taking a supplement to get something up to a specific level may be problematic,
2: yeah? Yeah. Especially when it's the inactive form that they're measuring. It's like there is, is, could you really even say there's an ideal (coughs) uh, marker for anybody for their inactive form? I mean, it's kind of like self-regulating, is it not?
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's uh, it's a type of steroid or it has steroid-like effects, and... The marker that they measure is called 25-OHD, which is an abbreviation for the inactive form of vitamin D. And the body will go on to activate that form to something called 125-OHD. And that's the active form. Okay. Typically, a doctor won't measure both. And now there are some more progressive thinkers who say, You should measure both because if there's a discrepancy between the two, like someone may have very low inactive form, 25 OHD, but they may have very high 125 OHD. So that means that their body is not necessarily deficient. It's just that for whatever reason, um, there is a discrepancy there. And if you don't measure both markers, then you could potentially be misled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are problems with taking the inactive form because it depends on someone's metabolism how well they convert the active form to the inactive form or sorry the active form the inactive form to the active form but also how well they utilize that and how much the body actually needs so me and doug were talking about this and this is probably a topic for a whole of the show because it seems to be really quite nuanced although people wouldn't have you believe that. They would have you think that it's set in stone, but it is very, very nuanced. But just to briefly skim over, um, there is some evidence to suggest that low vitamin D, or what we see as low vitamin D, may not be low vitamin D, but also it may actually be low, but it may be low for a variety of reasons. And it may be more of a symptom rather than a cause so we know that vitamin d is really important for the immune system for fighting off intracellular pathogens for regulating the immune response and the balance between the different branches of the immune system but the idea is that we boost vitamin d to boost the immune system okay whereas if you look at it from a different perspective perhaps the low vitamin d is actually rather a consequence Mm -hmm. of immune dysregulation rather than a cause of immune dysregulation um and there's a very good article on salt which kind of touches on this and it's quite detailed it's called too much of a good thing excess vitamin d And she makes a very good argument, the author does, her name's Roseanne Lindsay. She makes Mm -hmm. a very good argument that it may be a consequence of immune dysfunction and that there may be some kind of, she gives one example where there is perhaps a chronic infection which gets inside of the cells and actually down regulates the amount of vitamin D that is being produced by the body. Um, because it in some way benefits the pathogen. Um, and so simply feeding vitamin D may actually exacerbate the problem. So there's, she's citing research, which I've come across before, which is very interesting, is that if you read all these articles and things, you'll see that short-term vitamin D supplementation seems to be really beneficial, specifically for autoimmune conditions, where it modulates the immune system. But long-term, and she talks about this, is that long-term, it's actually been shown to exacerbate relapse. Mm -hmm. So it may be good at suppressing the symptoms, very short-term, but it doesn't actually address the root cause of the problem and may actually make it worse. Mm -hmm. Similar things have been found with omega-3 fish oils. So... I, I don't discount that in certain contexts these are beneficial. Likewise, vitamin D might be beneficial in certain context. But to say that everyone should take these things um, may be maybe problematic. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's a lot of things to consider before chugging down a bunch of supplements. Mm-hmm. And I think it requires a lot of research and due diligence and suspicion just that you the same suspicion that you would have for pharmaceutical drugs i mean just because it's natural supplement or you got it from the health food store or something doesn't mean that you can just blindly trust whatever they say about it you have to really know your body and it's always beneficial to get tested just to confirm results
4: Mhm.
0: So, we don't want to make it seem like supplements are the devil or anything, but just use your head.
2: Yeah, I think that's the case. Yeah, yeah we don't mean to be bashing the idea of supplements because obviously they're very helpful for some conditions and when used with some knowledge... They can yeah. uh, they can be very helpful, mm-hmm. especially, you know, keeping in mind quality and all that sort of thing. But it doesn't mean that you should just be doing them willy-nilly.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So do we want to yeah. go to the uh, pet health segment? Yeah. What's the pet health segment on?
2: <laughs> uh, we'll uh, see. Canine stress syndrome. Yeah. Okay.
3: And welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness
4: Show. This week I would like to share with you a recording by Dr. Karen Becker about a relatively rare inherited disorder that can cause a dog
3: to have potentially life-threatening reactions in response to very specific triggers. Although it is rare, since it concerns a large variety of breeds, best to know the signs in case your dog will experience something similar, and especially
5: if they have to undergo a surgery of any kind best to be aware, so listen up and have a great weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker, and today we're going to discuss canine stress syndrome, which is called CSS. It's also called canine malignant hyperthermia, or CMH. This is a relatively rare inherited disorder that can cause a dog to have potentially life threatening reactions in response to very specific triggers. The disorder is called canine stress syndrome because it tends to show itself when a dog is under stress or overstimulated. Triggers for episodes of CSS include excitement, apprehension, too much exercise, too intense exercise, ingestion of food ingredients such as caffeine or hops, environmental stress, vaccines, and certain anesthetic agents and other specific drugs that can affect the neurologic and muscular systems of the body. Certain breeds are predisposed to carrying the genetic mutation that causes CSS. The condition has been reported in the Bichon, Border Collie, Golden Retriever, Greyhound, Labrador Retriever, the Pointer, Saint Bernard, and the Springer Spaniel. Canine Stress Syndrome is caused by defective calcium ion channels in the striated muscles that connect the bones in a dog's legs and spine and are responsible for voluntary coordinated movements such as walking and head movements. Muscle contractions are dependent on calcium levels. In normal muscles, increases and decreases in calcium levels occur very rapidly, allowing precise control of muscle movement. In a dog with CSS, faulty control of calcium levels leads to calcium leakage, which makes muscles more susceptible to physiological stress and certain drugs. In addition, when the muscles in a CSS dog are activated, it triggers the release of abnormally large amounts of calcium, resulting in muscle rigidity. The syndrome causes a range of symptoms, including abnormally high body temperature, muscle tremors, muscle rigidity, seizures, rapid and irregular heartbeat, increased breathing rate, a bluish tinge to the skin and mucous membranes, unstable blood pressure, fluid buildup in the lungs, impaired blood coagulation, and in the worst case scenarios, kidney failure. Diagnosis of malignant hyperthermia is usually based on observing the symptoms a dog develops while under stress or after being given certain anesthetic drugs. Symptoms can occur gradually or quickly and include muscle stiffness, twitching, and and a really increased heart rate and respiratory rate. Dogs under stress, but not anesthesia, may have open mouth breathing and an increased breathing rate. In light-colored dog, the skin can at first lighten, then turn red, and finally take on a bluish hue. The body temperature can increase to as much as 113 degrees Fahrenheit during an episode. There are several laboratory tests that can help identify dogs susceptible to CSS, but they can't be used as a diagnostic tool in the middle of a crisis. If a dog with CSS undergoes anesthesia using halothane gas, the results can be quickly fatal. This is why it's really important to identify a dog with this mutation through DNA testing prior to scheduling surgical procedures. There's no cure for malignant hyperthermia. Since episodes come on suddenly and are typically very severe, sadly this condition can often be fatal. That's why it's important to identify dogs with a gene mutation as early as possible and take steps to prevent CSS symptoms from ever developing. It's recommended that dogs with this disorder who require anesthesia for any type of veterinary procedure receive a muscle relaxant drug prior to being anesthetized. Certain anesthetic agents like halothane should obviously be avoided, but there are other anesthetic drugs that are totally safe to use with CSS patients. So there's some options out there. Veterinary procedures must be kept as short as possible. So those dogs need to remain under anesthesia for as short as possible because CSS episodes most often occur after an animal's been anesthetized more than an hour. Most CSS treatments focus on managing secondary conditions resulting from defective calcium metabolism. In traditional veterinary medicine, these may include seizure control medications, glucose therapy, and the use of tranquilizers during really stressful situations. CSS dogs should also be protected from stressful situations, intense exercise, and food and drugs that can trigger symptoms. While these precautions aren't foolproof in preventing malignant hyperthermia, they can reduce the chances a crisis will ever develop.
0: Do those goats not have CSS?
2: <laughs> For sure.
0: Because they're goats and not canines, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> GSS.
0: <laughs> so, is that the end of our show?
2: I believe so. Mm-hmm.
0: We've made our point very clear i guess so okay well that's our show for today <laughs> thanks to all the chatters uh, we will see you next week with another show topic to be announced and you can watch the saturday show uh truth perspective or sunday you can catch newsreel bye everybody
3: bye Bye-bye.